Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is the 14th episode of our 2022 series, and this time being recorded live in London. Um, so we thought we would talk about uh, something that has changed deeply after the pandemic, and that is that suddenly it doesn't really matter where you are, but it could really matter where you are for the formation and thinking around policy. So with me, Nicholas Berry Lumlod, and... With me, Richard Allen. So, Richard, over to you. Let's yeah. set the stage. I mean, if, if people have been um, following the news lately, they'll have seen some uh, kind of quite excitable coverage saying that, uh, noting that various executives, particularly of the company Meta, uh, formerly known as Facebook, have become distributed into new locations. There's a guy called Adam Mosseri who runs Instagram, who is in London for a while. He was one of the other uh, execs at Facebook has moved to New York, I think, and uh, um, my old friend Nick Clegg, who runs public policy at Facebook, has moved back to London, which is where, where he was before he took the job there. And so, so there's very scattering. I think Mark Zuckerberg has been cited in Hawaii um, more commonly <laughs> recently. And, and so it is interesting that certainly my experience back in the day, and I think yours was the same, Nicholas, was that, that you know, to really be at the heart of a Silicon Valley company, you had to be in the building in Palo Alto or Menlo Park or Cupertino or Mountain, Mountain View, View yeah. wherever it was, you know, these are the there was a cadre of people and that's where the decisions were made. And however however sort of impactful you felt you were at the company, if you were not there, you weren't part of those really significant decisions. And that yeah. I, I never expected to change. I mean I spent years kind of on, on the outer edges of those sort of inner circles. I think you were spent more time inside the inner circle. Um, but it didn't feel like it was going to change. It was a constant complaint and people kept saying, oh, we must be more distributed, but it didn't happen. And now since the pandemic, it actually seems to be happening for real. No, I think that's right. I mean, I spent some total, some five years working uh, in two different uh, sessions in, in Silicon Valley. And um, it's very true that what happens in headquarters uh, is much more rich than you can communicate in a distributed way. So, so being there really mattered. Uh, and I think it mattered perhaps even more when the companies were smaller. As they're growing, maybe they've, I mean, the growth and the pandemic might have combined into a situation where, where people finally have accepted the kind of distribution that you described, that we should be more distributed, that we should try to have more impressions from from the rest of the world. Uh, because there is always this risk, isn't there? The, I mean, we've both felt this in some ways, I think, this notion of a, a Californian bubble, that there is yeah. like a, a set of beliefs that are hard to shake if you're actually in California. And uh, no fault of these very smart people, they get stuck in a zeitgeist and a placegeist mm. uh, that is hard to, to, um, to overcome, right? Yeah, I think those bubbles exist everywhere. So that we talk about, yeah, the Westminster bubble or inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C. or, yeah. you know, the city of London has a financial services bubble and New York, Wall Street has one. So I think, and actually the, the criticism is consistent, I think, across all of them, that people inside those bubbles have a particular way of seeing the world which, which can become disconnected from the way in which ordinary people are experiencing the world. Mm. And that matters whether it's bankers or politicians or the people building online services, that disconnection matters. And I think it can be particularly acute with Silicon Valley because of uh, all sorts of facts around and we can explore some of those, but I mean, just, just the, the sheer wealth that is there, the kind of protected lifestyles that people have. And then, and then those protected lifestyles set against actually uh, some rather extreme poverty that exists in, in, in cities like San Francisco. So it's kind of a very, it's, it's a very weird 
place in which to live, uh, I think, for a lot of people. And I think that does have particular effects mm. in a way, as I say, that other professions also people say, look, they're cosseted, you know, the kind of people that fly around the world in private jets and only stay in five star hotels and things like they just experience life differently from from the vast majority of people. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to go back in history, because if you think about it, what has happened in Silicon Valley is that the set of of original conditions started a network effect where we had Fairchild, we then got more semiconductor processors, we had Stanford, and together this started to to generate some kind of engine that mm. produced a lot of good things. Uh, but at some point, an engine like this also becomes self-reinforcing and self-reaffirming. Yeah. And so a belief around Silicon Valley being the only place you could be if you wanted to start a new company, the only place where you could actually make progress if you were a, a visionary technologist, uh, started to grow as well. And it's, it's fascinating to me to then think that if, if this is now going away, does it mean that we'll see a slowdown in technological development? Or will we see really different technological development? Is it possible to break a bubble? Because the counter argument is to say that, yes, of course, there's a Westminster bubble and there's a inside the Beltway bubble and there's a California Silicon Valley bubble because people only get things done in bubbles. Yeah, well, I think here it actually may be different. That's the, that's the, the point because they're building technology. I think So I think where you've got bubbles that are built around an institution, like a political institution, you know, arguably that institution can only be in one place. Uh, you can try it. See, they've been talking here about uh, taking half of the British Parliament, the place where I hang out, the House of Lords, and sending it off uh, to another city. Uh, the people promoting that are actually the the current government because they know if they send the House of Lords off, they'll cause them less trouble. But the counter argument is, look, when you have an institution like a parliament uh, and you're trying to debate stuff and make laws in real time, it can only be in one place. Arguably, though, I think for you know building technological software services, that there isn't the same necessary connection to place. I think there was, a, as you describe, a sort of... Uh, not quite accidental, but one where, where uh, you know, it wasn't a deliberate decision, but it, over time it came to be the case that, look, if you were founding a company and you were in California, you could find the people with money to fund it. The venture mm -hmm. capitalists were sitting there on Sand Hill Road and, and they were looking out for things. And you could find the engineers, the, you know, the, literally the world's best engineers, fresh off building something similar to your product at another company. So you had other companies basically training your staff for you, and, mm -hmm. and, and you knew that. And then over time, it came to be the case that I think the, you know, this re self reinforces. So if you say to the investors, I'm hiring great engineers in Silicon Valley, they're more likely to put the money in than if you say, oh, I'm, you know, in, in wherever it is, back end of beyond uh, Idaho, I'm building some entity. The investors just wouldn't take you as seriously. Uh, and I think you'd, you'd struggle to persuade them. So it became a sort of self-reinforcing thing where being in Silicon Valley indicated or was a sign that you are more likely to be successful in a way that I'm not sure the facts supported, but from an investor's point of view, it looked like you were in the right place doing the right thing. I think just getting attention to a company in another place would have been harder. But I don't think there's any foundational reason why 20 software engineers sitting in the back end of beyond in wherever can't produce as good software as 20 software engineers sitting in Silicon Valley.
No, but, and then, but the question then becomes, can they scale? Can they grow? Yeah. Do they have the capital that makes it possible for them to succeed long term? Or, or can their idea then be copied in Silicon Valley and funded in a massive way? And so they are left behind because they didn't have access to the networks. To, to a certain degree, it's like this really interesting, complex network that has grown up in California that, that I, 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 I wonder what will happen with it. Because I remember back in 1999, I worked for the Swedish government. At something called the Swedish Office of Science and Technology, a very serious sounding thing. And so what we did was we essentially were sent over to um, to California. We sat in Menlo Park uh, to look at what was happening and report back to the Swedish government. You were like an, e, an E envoy, an E ambassador for the e Swedish envoy government. Yeah. Before we had E, e envoys. Yes. yes, yes, I was a, I was a meager, uh, measly uh, yeah. analyst. And... Uh, one of the things that we always heard, we had lots of visits because everyone wanted to come. This was during the bubble. Mm. Everyone wanted to come to Silicon Valley and see this fantastic thing. And, and the same question came back again and again and again from all of the politicians. They all said, how do we recreate the Silicon yeah. Valley of our own? We want the Silicon Valley in Jönköping or in Stockholm or in Gothenburg. And so, so what are the, so, so how do we do that? What's the, what's the secret recipe? And, and we would always say the same thing to them. There's no recipe. We don't know how this happened. We just know that it's a complex self-reinforcing network that is based on academic research on tons of money and a very, very ingenious way of funding. Venture capital is an organizational innovation that really matters. Mm. And a lot of engineering knowledge distributed across companies that grow and die in different ways. And if they die, the risk of having um, invested in them, both as an employee or an investor, is small because you could pulverize your risk. There were so many different companies that you could, if you invested across them, you didn't need to worry if one of them went bankrupt or you didn't need to worry if, if your uh, company went belly up because you could just go work in another one. So you created this really weird machine, yeah. organism even. Where, where I wonder if, if what's happening now is that we're saying people are moving out and they want to be in other places. Et we will have to really do this experiment in real time and see if you can build a Silicon Valley somewhere else. Yeah. Because that innovative power we still want, right? Well, I think so, so there is something about people being physically together. And I've certainly spoken to people in the companies who say that the productivity that they feel that they get from people at headquarters is much higher. Again, that can... That can reduce anyway as a company scale. I remember the time of uh, at a certain point I stopped wanting to go to uh, California because the company had got big enough to be distributed across so many buildings that if you went to California, you didn't actually go and meet people anymore. <laughs> you sat on video conferences between building one and building 50. Or you know, desperately just, biked between or them. Desperate, yeah, but, and there was a biking bit. There was a, there was a sort of all-in-one building phase and then a walking phase and then a biking phase and then a video conferencing phase. And I, I started thinking, well, what the hell is the point of flying to San Francisco to sit in a room and video conference with people when I can do it from the company of my own home? Anyway, but where you're not at that scale, where you actually have physical teams together there is something uh, sort of super productive about that. And actually when you look at other institutions like universities where uh, a lot of people do remote study and that is an option, but we haven't given up on the face-to-face -face university. We, we, we have an underlying assumption that it, it is better from an educational point of view. You will learn more, you'll have a richer learning experience if we bring thousands of people together into one place uh, and have them learn together. So, so I think there's something similar going, there's something about people in a room 
working on ideas together that is more productive than it can ever be if people are distributed. Yeah. Uh, for most people, again, but there are But what about the location that. of that room then? Because the question then becomes, does it matter if that room is in London or if that room is in Silicon Valley where there are a lot of other rooms like it? Yeah, so I, th- I, I think that's a really good point. So I think having people together in a room matters. Having the right quality of people in the room matters. Again, we can look at academia that... Um, you know, if the room that people are studying is in Stanford with, you know, sort of amazing academics in it, then that is likely to be more productive than we have to admit, like, a, or from an academic point of view, a room in another much less well off and less uh, prestigious university somewhere yeah, else yeah. is going to be different. So, again, arguably, if uh, um, in, in you know, by drawing out that analogy, we're saying the rooms in Silicon Valley at the moment are like the, the rooms at Stanford. They're full of the best and the brightest. Uh, um, other places could be as good if they can get to the same level. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be the challenge. And again, I've heard that, that you know, the leadership, the, the, the stars of an engineering team uh, are the stars of an engineering team that's in a London or a Stockholm, or a Berlin, as starry as the stars of an engineering team that you would have in the Silicon Valley uh, space. And that, if that redistribution occurs, then I think you have evened it out. Yeah, but let's, let's, let's take, take a, a thought experiment here that's kind of interesting. Assume that uh, a young entrepreneur comes to you and has a really good idea that you like, and you think this is something that I, you know, did I have the money I did, I'd invest a little bit in him. But he comes to you because he wants to ask you a question. And the question is this. I have two possible investors here. One is Sequoia uh, over in Silicon Valley, and they're offering to invest, and they're really interested in what I'm doing. But I have a similar offer from this uh, London venture capitalist. Uh, now, the difference is that the London venture capitalists won't invest in me if I stay in London and Sequoia want me to move to Silicon Valley. Yeah. What do you say? And I, I use the brand name Sequoia for a very specific reason because they have such high brand value yeah. for some of the funding over there. Would you? This is a London entrepreneur. He's grown up here. He's born and bred and he really likes London and he wants to sort of bring more to the UK economy. But he has this opportunity to now go to Silicon Valley and try his idea out there or stay here and have it funded by a London VC that's by necessity going to be a little bit less famous than Sequoia. Yeah. What's your advice to well, him? I was going to say, particularly the old, the old school one would be you, you take the London VC's money you keep developing here and then in two or three years you sell out to the Americans yeah. at a much higher price is the sort of cheeky Well, the Americans say, well, you're fine if you don't want to yeah. we'll just find somebody here in Silicon Valley. There's so really, many bright yeah. people here and we'll ask them to go work on the same thing. Do you, are you really confident that yeah. you're that far ahead? I, I mean, I think now, actually, I think there's a lot more security in being in the territory that you know. And maybe that's the other thing that the pandemic has taught us. You know, just, just think that we... I couldn't have imagined five years ago the experience of you know I brought some engineers to uh, California and now they can't leave and see their families for two years you know just the which has happened to a lot of friends of ours and so again just in terms of where you are I think a lot of reason people are moving to place or they're settling in certain places that sense of good of like crikey if the curtain comes down again am I happy you know when when the when the dance music stops mm. am I dancing in the right place uh, I like the chair I see yeah yeah and so I think that some of that so again just to that person now I th- actually think the case is really interesting to work it through if you really want to be in London if going to California is really really not something you want to do and you're only doing for you know the professional advancement 
it's got to be quite a big delta now. I think previously it would have been a much lower delta because the risk of going to California was so low. Yeah. I go to California, it doesn't work out, I come back home again. Uh, you know, now you have this weird thing of like, oh, yeah, it's, everything could get really difficult again. The, the world is much less stable. I would rather be in my home environment and be secure here. And so I think, I think inter- I'd be interested to know if any listeners who, who are in that position of being funded, how they're making those decisions. My instinct is, is that the London offer is much more compelling and the margin for that Sequoia offer would have to be much higher than it was perhaps pre-pandemic. It's interesting that they would have to pay a premium because uh, of wanting to attract you to Silicon Valley. It would have been the other way around yeah. just 10 years ago where they would be able to give you a worse offer because having Sequoia back you and being in Silicon Valley would be like have this enormous signal value to yeah. the rest of the you market. Were, you were desperate to go there. Yeah. But I think you know now the idea, and, and again, also the negative stories about San Francisco, the sort of constant drip drip of negative stories that has been building up over years. We were there, you know, with the the bus protest started, if people aren't aware, that the the tech, I mean, it sounds weird again for European people protesting against buses that people were using instead of cars, but the buses had a real impact in terms of the social demographics of San Francisco. It was perceived segregation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was was this sort of thing, I remember walking into it and getting, people are really upset about the buses, then you dig into it and you find that it's both segregating and, and the way in which the fact that the buses existed meant that the cost of rented accommodation in areas was going up yeah, through, yeah. through no sort of fault of the local Hyper-gentrification. It's a hyper-gentrification. Yeah, so yeah. it caused all this problem. And again, we've had what now sort of five, six, seven years, I think, of, of steady negative stories. I, th- I think if anyone's reading the press today, San Francisco does not seem like the promised land. <laughs> Silicon Valley does not seem like the promised land. And so again, I think you're right, something has subtly changed from a period at least certainly 10 years ago, where it'd be like, oh, I must get to California, I want to go. It's, you know, everything, everything is shiny and wonderful there to, you know, not so sure. And, and you've got to make it quite compelling for me to go. And even the, even the American companies are moving out. A lot of them are going to places like Austin. And there's a lot, a lot of American migration out of uh, the Bay Area to other places as well, yeah. again, on similar basis. That it's uh, the cost of living and real estate has also, been crazy, yeah. and the congestion and yeah. the commutes. And so I, I remember, you know, when we lived there in the other session, we lived there, we lived there from 2010 to roughly 2014. And so that time you could still drive and you could, uh, you did not have to have valet parking in yeah. the company parking lot, <laughs> which was the only way to get all of the cars sorted in such a way that you could actually park when I came back two years later and so it had become incredibly dense and and almost overheated and that's happened with Silicon Valley a few times it's been overheated and it's receded in popularity but it's always come back over the years again and again and again isn't this just a lot of a temporary uh, weakness in the Silicon Valley uh, spirit or do you think we I mean it's also conceivable of course that we're standing in front of some kind of shift where where this engine of innovation and technological growth uh, might be shifted out. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm more inclined to say it is a fundamental shift. It's not just going to bounce back. So I think we had the we had the sort of boom and bust of when when you're in California and caused that first bust, Nicholas. When you yeah, that was my fault. Yes, the, the Swedes <laughs> brought down. The, yes, May the, 2000 was all about Swedes. <laughs> yeah, um, and so we had that, and the, and you're right. Then it did come back up, and it sort of got to high. But I actually think it may have peaked and, and gone now. I think probably the the critical factor is whether people can 
come up with new forms of team organization that match the levels of productivity that you had and creativity and, and the sheer sort of innovative strength that you had by bringing all those people together in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And, and I think the jury's out on that. So it will be interesting. So I think as individuals, we're making different choices. Again, post-pandemic, I think there's quite a lot of evidence that people are prioritizing different things in their lives. Yeah. Uh, um, but are, are we going to be able to, are people going to be able to develop you know, methods of team working where they do get people together physically in different spaces at different times and are able to match, say, that just that sheer level of inventiveness that you had out of Silicon Valley. I mean, that's one, one thing. That's assuming that we still want that level of innovation. Yeah. I guess the other one is we don't need as much innovation, you know, so it's okay. <laughs> no. yeah. uh, um, but maybe we need more small team innovation and maybe different things going on. Again, our, one of our favourite uh, comparators to look at, maybe our friends in the pharma industry again, yeah. where pharma has gone, I think, uh, quite a lot from having, you know, a big uh, lab full of uh, thousands of white-coated scientists to actually the big pharma companies tend to be nurturing lots of small individual biotech industries yeah. uh, in biotech companies that then uh, sort of get either they get spun out or spun back in again it's much more about a, a, a conglomerate i think is probably the right word uh, a conglomerate of lots of smaller entities than it is about one massive lab with everybody in it and, and there, there's another argument in favor of what you're saying that's uh, about the second and third wave of the internet revolution where the first wave was about consumer technology that could build directly on the computer technology uh, and so naturally had tons of network uh, advantages in being in the same place where the computers were being invented. Mm. Uh, the next wave is about regulated industries and those regulated industries have a slightly different geographical distribution. If you think about financial industries, for example, there are tons of them in London. So yeah. maybe if you want to be really invested in fintech, you want to be in Frankfurt or in London uh, or in New York. But Silicon Valley doesn't carry the same kind of network advantages for you because you want to have the access to that uh, existing knowledge and recruit from the existing financial technology companies. So, so maybe another argument in favor of the sort of fundamental shift theory would be that now that we're moving into health, to pharma, to finance, what's going to happen is that these other geographical centers are going to light up with technology innovation. And it's no longer... Um, it's no longer viable to say that all things technology happen over in Silicon Valley. That's right. I mean, you're right on the fintech side. Absolutely. That's much more distributed. Singapore, Sao Paulo, there's lots of centers of fintech. Uh, and in fact, all those lovely crypto companies, many of which are struggling right now, are much more distributed. They're not... Yeah, partly for in, legal reasons, though. Yeah, outside yeah. the jurisdiction. They're not all in uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah, so they'll move around. But, but you're right. So the regulated point means that they're more distributed. But I think also, as an interesting point you made, that we're kind of moving higher up the stack so the the big heavy hardware is there and that's going to be run by these big multinational companies so so you know you you've got your google cloud and your microsoft azure and your amazon web services so so interestingly yeah your investment you could be a team of you know 200 developers not ever bothering with any of that kind of networky hardware stuff because you don't need to uh, and so you can be a smaller more agile team 
working on top of other people's layers of, of big infrastructure. Yeah. And that does speak to being able to be much more distributed and in, in different locations. So you don't need to be sitting with your servers anymore. Mm. In fact, you don't even know where the servers are or who's it. You know, you, you signed a contract and somebody's providing you a service. So I think that, that, um, uh, that sort of simplification, the sense of fact that some of the big heavy industry stuff is being done for you makes a change. Yeah. And then the regulator point actually, back to our so-called policy subject is, look, again, there may be significant regulatory advantages to being in uh, a country that's not the US. Yeah. And, and with digital sovereignty, arguably, if you, want to, um, if you want to innovate in Europe, you probably want to be in Europe. If you, and this is the third way, right? When you move into to the industrial applications of internet technology, internet of things, internet-enabled production, all of those different things are in, in some way very local and it's hard to innovate from afar and sort of mm. sit in a, a lab and come up with this super duper application that will make cars. No, no, that's going to happen with where the car production is. Yeah. So uh, the industrial uh, wave, the in some sense the third wave here, is also going to relocalize uh, the innovation. So so it's interesting then, we, um, uh, the, the prediction here is that there is we're heading towards the end of Silicon Valley. People have bet on the end of Silicon Valley a lot of times before yeah. and lost. So what would make you change your mind? If you look at this and you say, okay, uh, I, th I would revise my uh, mind. I would revise my view if I, if I saw this or that happening. What, yeah. what would make you go like, hmm, maybe, maybe there's, a, there's like yet another comeback in the Californian comeback kit. I mean, I think it's a, let's um, keep it simple. If we look at the sort of top 20 charts of the apps that we're downloading on our mobile devices, that's kind of pretty good indicator of, you know, the most successful software services that are out there. And, and maybe top 20 in different categories. Yeah. It's not just social media, but look at your financial uh, services, all of the different kind of categories of service. And, you know, certainly, um, Silicon Valley companies have dominated those top 20s for years, like the charts, pop pickers, charts. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, if I'm right in saying the Silicon Valley is declining, you'll just see that shift over time that more and more of the top 20 players will have their headquarters outside of Silicon Valley. Mm. If on the other hand, it consistently remains that or as somebody gets kicked out of the top 20, the new player is a Silicon Valley player that I'm going to have to uh, change my mind on that because that, that will show what's happening. So, I mean, it's pretty brutal. And, you know, this yeah. business, as you said, the VCs are pretty brutal. They want to back the winners and the winners are the ones who get, you know, the most distribution, the most reach and, and get out to the most people in, in each particular segment. And I say, let's, let's watch the pattern there. We've, the Europeans have talked about this for years. Why haven't we got our European search engine and our yeah. European search engine? And it's never going to happen. But but I say it may be that the action is anyway moving uh, to other kinds of services. Yes, uh, and and to not fight the last technological war, but think about what the next technological advance would be, like health, yeah. where there is lots of structured health data in Europe. When you have a possible advantage if you wanted to build a thriving health industry, for example. So, so there's another aspect of this. We talked about the innovation engine that Silicon Valley has been historically and how it developed as an innovation engine, but but there's there's Historically, you've always had two things coupled. One is the innovation in Silicon Valley, and then on top of that, an ideology. Mm. And they've been tightly coupled. And, and what has happened in some ways is that the, the, the technology, the belief in the future, got, got sort of coupled with this whole earth catalog, Californian, yeah. hippie is the wrong word, but the sort of very progressive agenda. And, and they 
they really knit together in a tight way so that when the internet came, the internet was equal parts an ideological and a an, uh, technical innovation, I think. That's fair to say. And, and mm. at least the way it was launched, perhaps not in the 1960s, but when it sort of really started to, to pick up speed, it had an ideological component to it that was also driving that speed. Adoption of the internet was adoption of this new world, of this new set of values, etc., etc. You could imagine a world in which the innovation is sort of still sputtering along in Silicon Valley quite nicely with all the funding, etc., but where you decouple the ideology. Mm. And so what determines where the ideology of technology is produced? So, so I think there has been a theory that essentially that the reason, one of the other reasons California and America in particular has dominated is that people there are more willing to break the rules, that they're libertarians, they... They, they're not going to sit back and wait for permission to do something. They're just going to build it and get it out there. And that people in other places like Europe are going to be sitting back waiting till the data protection agency signs off their project six months later before they build the next thing. With a physical stamp. With a physical stamp, yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I think that's exaggerated in the sense that I think innovators everywhere want to break things. Yeah. <laughs> they they, yeah. they want to hack and they want to break things. And you meet those people here in Europe just as you get them in Silicon Valley. Um, but but I think so. I so I'm not sure that that difference is so great. But I do think in terms of the ideology um, that there are so, but there's a dark side to it actually. I mean, and I think that actually may be one of the things that's damaging Silicon Valley now to some extent. That there's a there's a libertarian aspect which you can see as very progressive, very sort of pro-social. Yeah. Uh, we want to democratize. That's the phrase, isn't it? The social media democratizes the media, and and Bitcoin democratizes finance. All this kind of stuff. So there's that democratizing language, which is seen as sort of for the people. And then there's a, a slightly darker side to the libertarianism, which is the sort of, you know, only the, the strong shall survive and the weak will fall by the wayside because they're not as smart and clever and, and this cool is as us. elitism there. I it's think a huge, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you see it, and some of the characters in Silicon Valley are seen as very much in that sort of right-wing libertarian world, and they tend to build their own you know, uh, compounds and sort of cut themselves off from the rest of the world. There's, there's a strong feeling of that, which actually I think is, personally, I, I'm not attracted to it as a political no. philosophy. And I actually think one of the healthier things would be to have people, as long as they do still have that hacker culture, I'm, I want to break things, I'm not just going to sit back and wait, because that's where the innovation comes from. But actually, I'd love to see that decouple from this sort of more right-wing libertarian view where which i think does lead us down quite dark paths sometimes where yeah. you know the price of the innovation is uh, the innovation at all costs like doesn't matter who gets hurt along the way as long as it's not me and i'm not going to get hurt because i've got all the money <laughs> already yeah. um, but if those ordinary people out there get hurt then you know it's that kind of because the greater good says that we'll build this wonderful thing and that'll all benefit over time. And that, you know, for me, that's not a really responsible attitude to technology and something I used to find quite alienating when you come across it. It wasn't the dominant theme, but it was certainly a strong strand in in Silicon Valley thinking. Yeah, and, and sort of thinking you, you need to innovate because people don't know what they want. And yeah. so you should give them what they want, even if that's not what they want. So there's something about that that I agree is it, it's, it's, 
elitist and not very attractive. Then, but but let's get so we have come back to this notion that there is like an ideology role that's been played mm. historically by Silicon Valley as well as an innovation role. So uh, we think maybe the innovation role is uh, slowing down. We see innovation in other places now because it's moving into other sectors. We think it's moving into other. Uh, network centers for other industries, um, but if so, and it's easy to see how you would attract that. If you're a London or a Frankfurt, or if you're a Singapore, um, you can essentially say, "Here's all of the infrastructure, and we have a little bit of funding." You attract a little bit of VC, and and you might be able to build the innovation part of Silicon Valley. But how do you build the ideology part? Yeah. How do you become a part in the conversation about the ideology of the technological society we're building? Is it through the regulatory evangelism of the European Commission? Is it through... How do you connect with that piece of the puzzle? Yeah, I don't think we've worked that out enough. I think that's maybe another episode coming up here because I think we do need to think about that. I think there is a dominant internet ideology, which is this American, Californian, libertarian ideology, and it's dominant for, for obvious reasons because that's been the history of it. And then there's... Uh, everything else is the enemy of the internet. <laughs> so the European Commission, etc., it's all seen as anti-innovation, slowing things down. Uh, and, and yeah, that's the, that's the sort of dichotomy that's put in front of people. Like, either you have that uh, libertarian American view of the world, or you're an enemy of in- innovation, you want to slow things down. Uh, and I don't think that, I think that's a false dichotomy. There is, there is uh, another way, a uh, third way, no. Yeah. But there is some, there's something... Um, to be worked through where you can still be innovative. Like people who write fabulous code to solve problems are going to do that in any environment. Uh, I think there's a lot of questions about what what kind, you know, what, what's the instruction that's given, what's the guidance that's given when you're writing the fabulous code to solve problems, what's the ideological framework within which you're working. But I don't think there's any reason to think that people who are careful about things like, you know, potential damage done by their systems and their products. I, I don't think there's any reason to think those, that being careful necessarily means you're anti-innovation. No. Uh, you know, you can still build fabulous things. I think there's probably something about the money that's an issue though, yeah. where, where you said, you know, innovation is geniuses, you know, brilliant men and women writing amazing things, creating amazing uh, uh, products that are completely novel. They need to be supported while they do that. And so I think there is probably something around the way in which money works, where money is likely to follow people who are taking bigger risks. Mm. Uh, so the person who comes and says, I'm going to do this carefully, and I might take another year to do it before I launch my product because I want to get it right. It's not the product's less innovative than the one that launched when it was half-baked. It's just that they're taking their time to get it right. Uh, but I think the money is probably going to want the, the half-baked product that gets launched more quickly. Yeah. Uh, or certainly it has. And maybe it's the ideology of, v, of Silicon Valley VC is the other piece of it. that, that uh, uh, I think that factors VC. into the Californian yeah. uh, ideology. The, the, you know, fast is better than slow. Yeah. Uh, move fast yeah. and break, break things. things right? yeah. and so there's, there's something about speed here that's really interesting. And speed relative to what because if it's speed relative to the existing system and you want to move faster than it in order to to shock it even then then it becomes it becomes a very aggressive way of thinking about things if it's yeah. if it's speed relative to your competitors then it's of course understandable in a different way because you need to be faster than your competitors but i, I do think that uh, it's 
the, the other alternative is to say, look, maybe what we need is not to find an alternative source of the ideology of the internet, but to de-ideologize technology and the internet overall, to make it into something that is a normal part of how we talk about democracy. So the kinds of decisions we make about technology shouldn't be called out as a category of their own. They should be integrated into yeah. the democratic conversation that we have overall. So what we could get rid of if we decouple technological progress from the Californian ideology is this notion that technological progress is its own space, strand, its own process that should be judged with different ideological eyes than democratic progress. Yeah, I mean, in the sense that the trend towards regulation takes us there. Because, uh, I mean, at the moment, the ideology of the people who build the tools that we use online really matters because it's going to be reflected in the way in which those tools work. I think it can be, again, it can be exaggerated because I think often they are trying to build neutral tools, but the assumption is that there, that there is a, a very strong uh, sort of bias in one direction or the other, or sometimes in both directions by the people building the tools. And, and that's always an issue. I think once you move towards the regulator, say, look, we, we own the ideology now on behalf of the people, and we're telling you you know, to a certain extent, how you should design your products. We're, we're saying what kind of ideology should be put on top of, of yeah. those products. That does shift things actually quite significantly. Yeah, and, and maybe there's another aspect of this that's also interesting to explore, and that is that the reason that technology could be so tightly coupled with ideological, ideological concerns was that a lot of the internet evolved, uh, if you look at least from the end of the 80s towards the 2010, in what was essentially an ideological vacuum. There yeah. was like an, a demand for ideologies. What's happening now, and this is on a darker note, is that you're seeing ideological competition between the East and the West. Yeah. And that may in many ways overtake the idea that there should be any specific ideology connected to technology. Maybe what you get now instead is a, a Western ideology and an Eastern ideology that also determine the technological progress we make. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there's no doubt, again, if the power, that's the, that's the sort of counter-argument why, you know, people don't want the power to go to governments, is that then, uh, once you're in that space, then they're much more, you know, imposing their terms. But I think you could look at it, so sometimes, sometimes it will be political, but at other times it's, it's uh, sort of more straightforward. If we look at the example of what's happening with uh, um, uh, crypto assets, vendors at the moment. So in the UK, they've shifted things to say that the, the only crypto assets that could be promoted are ones that are regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, by the authorities yeah, here. Yeah. yeah, and so so crypto asset providers have got a choice. Uh, but they said that, you know, they don't care. The FCA doesn't care what the ideology is of the crypto asset provider. It doesn't matter. It's like, here are 10 things you need to do technically to demonstrate that you're compliant. If you can tick those boxes, then you can trade. If you can't tick those boxes, you can't trade. And so there is a, you know, there's a lot of regulation that is simple sort of mechanics like that, which, I mean, you, you can argue there is an ideology there. The ideology, if you're the crypto But it promoter, gets much yeah. less traction, right? Yeah. Because I think there is, there is no ideological vacuum anymore in which it can, the, the way the internet could play out, the way John Perry Barlow in 96 could write the, the Declaration of Independence that we talked yeah. about earlier, that, that all happened because yes, there was like... Um, well, there was a, almost like an ideological thirst for, yeah. for new ideas. 
Um, now we're getting old ideas repackaged in an East and Western tension mm. uh, that I think to a large degree actually makes it uh, much harder for, for example, the crypto enthusiasts to push through their vision or their ideology. It, it's just much less traction. I yeah, I mean, it's actually moved very quickly from, if you think, yeah, the crypto world has moved very quickly from we're going to break everything. <laughs> we're going to move fast and break things. They have yes. broken quite a few things to now, I mean, actually both East and West have cracked down uh, yeah. on them and there's a definitely a shift by governments into that space. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's sort of underway at the moment. Uh, and, and I say a lot of that uh, regulation will be, is it, yeah, question, is it ideological to say the financial institution must, you know, conform to certain basic safeguards in order to protect well, consumers. It's, it's sovereignty, right? It's so, the yeah. ideology of traditional nation-state sovereignty has taken over the ideology of these alternative temporal zones, or the, yeah. the, the, the what's the name? The temporal autonomous zones that the the early cyber anarchists spoke about, and and so so you're back into a world where nation-states are uh, at the helm and definitely deciding what happens. So you follow the rule of the regulator or you're out. You crack down on these businesses and tell them, we have absolutely zero interest in ideological competition with you. Here's the regulation, abide by it and do your business, but don't come with your visions and your ideas yeah. of what the world should look like. And, and if you think about it again, back to our Silicon Valley theme, because I've said this before, in terms of, sort of sovereignty, the experience that somebody had, if I was sitting here in London, sitting in Stockholm, and you went to one of the Silicon Valley company's properties, you were effectively going to California <laughs> for that period of time because you were going into a space where all of the norms were the norms that have been set by people in California. Yeah. And now much more, when you go into those spaces, even the space of a global provider, you're going to go into something that's governed by the norms of your own country. Yeah. Then, uh, because the countries are insisting on it. So it's much more like, it's much more like uh, said in uh, the experience that you'll get on, on some geographically targeted services now like your netflix you know depending on which country you're in there's a different list of yeah uh, content and you can't you'll get see. hbo in this country what's up no. with that oh yeah, yeah. i was like <laughs> that's one of the great surprises when i moved here uh, i think that's i think the reassertion of territorial sovereignty mm. and the reassertion of of older ideologies now competing on a new political stage to reduce the space for any Silicon Valley ideology or any other technology connected ideology to evolve. It seems. Yes. And then it brings another question though is do the Silicon Valley people become demotivated if they're no longer building products to their own ideology? And this is certainly a thing, again, another sort of angle to, to working for these global companies is if, if now uh, you have to build your product in a particular way because the British Online Safety Bill says this is what you've got to do, um, when the instruction goes to the Silicon Valley engineer, they're going to go, no, that's terrible. I don't want to build it like that. Send it to an engineer in London. I mean, genuinely, this is, I think ah. there's going to be some of that going on. So again, that's going to drive. So it's, I think it's really frustrating. If you're... If you're brought up in the Silicon Valley atmosphere and and you know the right way to build things, you feel very strongly, you have very strong value. I mean, the UK is one thing, but imagine a much less democratic country uh, that, you know, the company has now decided it has to build the products to conform to the rules in that less democratic company. That's country. Point, yeah. It's going to be really uncomfortable yeah. for Silicon Valley engineers to be building 
two standards that they fundamentally object to. Yeah, and, and, and uh, the one thing that has happened over time is that if ideology has become geopolitically oriented and the tension between the East and the West is, is sort of playing out on the global stage, then the other thing that has happened is that this ideology everyone used to be a part of has become much more personal and a part of the way you think about your own identity and your identity and the way you express yourself is related to exactly what you do. So you're probably right, yeah. there's going to be um, uh, almost like a conscientious objector um, uh, scenario in which people decide that they, they will not themselves be party to the development of technology in countries where they, where they yeah. don't agree with the basic values governing that progress. Which is, again, brings us back to that problem that I think is, is pervasive in, 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 in some of the interpretations of that ideology. And it's that elitism where you say, I know better because I am smarter and the democratic process does not apply to me because in many ways I understand better than you do what you need. Yeah, and, and what we're building is the future and people in government are stupid and people in foreign governments are even more stupid <laughs> than people in the American government. I mean, again, to being candid, that's kind of... But the space uh, for that has to, I mean, it's so much smaller now and the space, I think that you'll probably start to see... Uh, Anyway, you might see a few of those things happen, but I think you also see companies complying in a very different way yeah. and signaling to people that they will comply in a very different way. And if you want to change these things, which is a quite legitimate you know, wish, you have to engage in proper democratic institutions again, which might actually be good. Because one of the things that, uh, that uh, part of this technological progress also led to was a, a weakening of the existing institutions because conversations didn't happen there. Now our multilateral institutions are super weak after the pandemic and with the war. And, and if anything, they, they don't need uh, institutional competition from, from a technological ideology. They need more people to think about and invest in our institutional future. Yeah. So what we yeah, sign we come back to this. We yeah. it's a recurring theme uh, in our conversations. Sign yeah. of progress would be some of the brightest and best uh, coming out of the tech sector going to work at the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, and and, and fundamentally reforming it. Yeah. Saying, yes, we do. Let's play the, the game. Yeah. Let's try and make the ITU rather than just push it away and pretend yeah. it doesn't exist and tell it to back off. Let's go and get involved. Yeah. And again, the ITU is becoming a stage for some of the geopolitical tensions mm. with different countries meeting and looking at standards, for example, in a, in a way that I think is, is very strategic and, yeah. and, uh, and quite insightful. So, so there, is, there is certainly something happening there. So Geneva will be the new Silicon Valley, setting Geneva the norms. Will be the, well, I mean, in many ways, what we do need is institutional innovation. I subscribe yeah. to the, the classical quote by E.O. Wilson, where he says the problem with our age is that we have you know, Stone Age emotions, we have medieval institutions and godlike technology. <laughs> I don't think we can do anything about the emotions because they're truly Stone Age and we haven't changed much. You made the point earlier when we talked. And the other, the other thing is the institutions then. So what can we do with the institutions to make sure that we do that? And if we invest in those institutions rather than in alternative ideologies, then maybe we can make progress. Maybe the, the decline of the ideological role of Silicon Valley might actually be the rise of a new generation of institutions. That's extremely optimistic, but yeah. I like being optimistic. Oh, I think we should, we should leave it on that happy note. Yes, we should. <laughs> Excellent. So you can find this podcast on your website, which is? www.regulate.tech. Well, thank you. And tune in next week or week after yeah. next when we'll have our next episode. Thank you so much.